All right, good morning. How are we doing? Well, it is good to join you this morning. If you're new here, welcome to Redemption Parker. My name is Mark. It is a privilege to worship with you and open up God's Word with you this morning. We're going to be in the book of Acts, chapter 16. If you're just joining us, we're working through this book. Uh, it is the story of Jesus continuing to work after his death, burial, and resurrection. He came to his disciples and he said, uh, well, I, that's into my sermon. Anyway, uh, We'll get to that in a second. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. It's the power and the purpose of the church. Uh, with that, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the sermon, and I'll get into that verse I was just about to quote. Uh, so let me pray. Father, uh, as we come before you now once again, uh, we're so thankful that we get to come before you in the name of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit, and that you would see fit to condescend not only to hear us, but to speak to us through your Spirit, through your Word, and Holy Spirit, as we say each week, we want, it, we want you to do what you do best and give us eyes to see and savor Jesus. Stir our affections for him. Fill us, comfort us, encourage us, confront us. Whatever you want to do, do your work in us now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, when Jesus was resurrected and he appeared to disciples over a period of 40 days right before he went up. Uh, he gave us this anchor and it's the anchor for the series. It's the anchor for the book of Acts. It's the anchor for our church. It, it is Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And, and what Jesus said there, it's on the screen here, is uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I want us to hold on to that anchor on the one hand today just to know that that is the promise, that you're going to have power and you're going to be witnesses uh, to the ends of the earth. And so that's our mission. That's your mission. If you're a follower of Christ, that's uh, what God has called you to in some way, shape, or form. It looks different for all of us, but we, we must hold on to that. And the second pillar I want to hold on to is a future promise. And in, in the book of Revelation, uh, in the future, that we get this scene in the throne room of God with the heavenly host worshiping Jesus, uh, King Jesus, resurrected Jesus. And there it says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is a future promise, but just as sure as Acts 1-8 is true, uh, Revelation 5 and Revelation 7 is true, and so I want us to hold these two great truths, and we live in between these two great truths, the promise that the Spirit would come and empower your life, and the promise that a day is coming where people bought by the blood of God from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather before the throne, and right now, we're in the middle of that. And if you don't hold on to these truths, it's easy to forget in this, the ordinariness and the stress of life and the, the, the middle of going to grocery stores and paying bills and planning retirement and going on vacation and, and dealing with kids and working out marriage problems and a thousand other things. It's easy to forget these two anchors for our souls and to get disconnected from what God has, is, is doing and wants to do in our lives. And so we hold on to the past promise and the future promise of these two things. And as we hold on to these things, we realize that God wants to work in and through our lives. Not when we get our lives uh, worked out, not when we get our marriage worked out or our kids worked out, but right here, right now, in your life right now, God is desirous to do that. And the promises are true. You have the power and the nations will gather and you get to be a part of that. Um, 
22 years ago, exactly half my lifetime ago, was the first time I got to experience full-time ministry. I was a summer intern in Okinawa, Japan, uh, working with Marines. And uh, what that basically meant is I, I got to teach some Bible studies, and they were terrible. And, uh, but, but God gave me the opportunity to teach, and the Marines were patient with me. Uh, and I got to just hang out, do a lot of hanging out time with Marines. And so I, I remember this one conversation in particular, late into the night, this guy named Adam. Adam uh, was kind of facing the end of his time in the Marine Corps, and he was wondering what he was going to do with the rest of his life. And, and he was kind of feeling that pressure. Some, some of you have been there before, like, what do I do next with my life? And, and he, I remember exactly what he said. He said, you know, I just don't know what I'm going to do. I feel nervous. I'm stressed. I, he said, I have no skills. Uh, I have no education. I have no experience. And he was kind of downcast. And then his eyes got real big. And he looked at me and he said, Mark, I could do what you do. (laughs) And he was absolutely serious, by the way. And I'm like, at first I was like, oh, oh, that hurts. No, No skills, no education, no experience. You could do what I do. But then I just love it. I loved it because if if more of us could believe the promise of Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and the promise of Revelation 5, then we could say, yes, all of us could be in an eternal way impacting eternity. And it doesn't matter your skills, experience, and education. God's power and his spirit in you is what matters. And so I would love for us, more of us, to believe that that God wants to work in and through our lives regardless of where we're at. And so uh, last week we had our coffee connection and this is just a a way for us to uh, just hear more about the church and for people to ask questions about the church and and, and answer. And so uh, one of them was there and he was just trying to process like, because this is a new new thing and uh, maybe a different experience. And he said, you know, I'm just wondering what it would be like if I brought maybe some unbelieving friends because, um, you know, it's just different. Normally, you know, a lot of churches, they have nice sanctuaries and and perfect lives and fog machines and, and it's, it's in some ways an easier bridge for my friends to go to that. So I just wonder, because you guys, you know, you just preach the gospel and I just wonder what, uh, what they would feel like in that moment. And then he's processing it a little bit more and he's like, is it just that you really hope the Holy Spirit shows up? Is that what you're hoping for? I'm like, yes, one, and no. Let me explain. Yes, we hope the Holy Spirit, because we believe the most relevant news in the history of the universe is the gospel. And, and if you don't know it or if you haven't yet received that, then, then there is nothing more relevant than that I could say up here right now is the gospel. And, and only the Holy Spirit, we'll see in this passage today, can actually apply that to people's hearts. So by all means, we, we recognize sometimes people come in here and they're exploring, and we're glad you're here if you're in that category. And we want to tell you about the good news of God. But also know, because the fact of the matter is, even if we were to grow to a mega church in this area with, say, 8,500 people, we'd still have less than 1% of the people of this city. The vast majority of the people will not step foot in here or any other church, for that matter, and so we, we want to encourage Christians. We want to remind them of the gospel. We want to uh, uh, fill their hearts with the gospel. We want to send them with the light of the gospel so that they will be in the world. And he said, so, so you're hoping that the members of Redemption Parker will be missionaries in, in the community. I'm like, yes, absolutely. We hope everyone thinks like a missionary. 
Now, now I've been a missionary for 15 years to another culture. And here's the deal. A, a lot of churches, the goal is how big can we get? How many people can we fit in rows? And that's a win for us. But uh, missionaries never think like that. Well, uh, wins are, are very different for missionaries. So you go into a culture and you learn the culture and you learn the language. You see what they love. You see what the idols are. You, you study and there's different wins. So for example, when, when we had just been in the Czech Republic a couple months and we're, our, our Czech language is terrible, but we're trying and I'm throwing the ball for, for my dog one day and it takes a funny bounce and it goes into my neighbor's massive garden backyard. And I'm like, oh, so I'm looking on Google Translate. What's the word for ball? Michka, okay. Uh, and I'm like, prosim, pochibuyum, michka, pochibuyum, prosim. And he's like, oh, you want the ball? And so he comes up and starts talking talking a thousand words a minute like I like I speak fluent Czech clearly I don't but he's talking to me and I'm just like uh shaking my head and and I, I figure out he's inviting us over to to join him and so I go to Jennifer I'm like I think our neighbors are inviting us over to go that's a win for us uh, we could have relationship with our unbelieving neighbors and so we go into their backyard and um he's talking and we're trying as best we can on google translate and it's just not working and we're trying and then he says some word like pivo and i'm like pivo i know that word that means beer and, and i was like ah, oh, no and he's like oh pivo and he sits sets two beers in front of me i'm like okay i guess we're double fisting it <laughs> and i'm like okay uh it's not what this isn't in the missionary handbook but um <laughs> Okay, and so we're, and then he's saying something else, and uh, next thing I know, he's, he, he's talking about something he's made, and, and he wants me to try it, and I'm like, okay, and so he starts, he puts two shot glasses in front of us. I'm like, what, what is going on here? And uh, he pours it, and for me and my wife, and his, him and his wife, and I mean, it's homemade, what's called Slivovica. It's just harsh, and so we, we take the shot, and we're like, okay, we're good, and and then he's talking about something else, and he pours two more, and we're like, whoa, okay. So, so then my wife's like, ah, she starts to like sip it, because it's harsh. And uh, the, her, his wife was like, ne, 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 no, 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 top it, top it. You got to top it. And we're like, uh, okay, top it. And so we go home, we're like, what just happened there? And go back to our, our Czech church and talk to the Czech pastor, and we're like, here's what happened. And he laughs, and he's like, you know what, that is so good. You, now you will have a lifetime friendship with those people. If, if you would have said no, they would have been polite, but you would never talk to them again. And so the, it was a win for us to bridge the gospel. It was a win for me when my, my Czech language partner, a, a Czech college student, I began to teach him English and he taught me Czech and I began to tell him about the Denver Broncos. And so he's like, what is this sport? And so he'd come over on Sunday night and, and, and we'd watch the games and I'd explain the rules and every now and again, we talk about more deeper spiritual issues. That's a win for a missionary mindset. It was a win when our Czech language teacher invited our family of six and her family of four to join them in their 500-square-foot apartment on the beach for a week of vacation together. And we don't speak each other's languages, but, but there, it was just a win because we were building relationships for the sake of the gospel. So yes, by all means, we want to see people think like missionaries. I want you to see in this passage that God delights to work through a diverse circumstances to reach diverse people. And, and every one of us in here that have come to know Jesus, we could tell our story and there would be a diversity of stories represented in this room. And I want you just to remember that. Remember that God delights to work through diverse circumstances to reach diverse people for the advancement of the gospel. 
And so this is what we're going to see in the book of Acts. We're going to see the planting of the church at Philippi. This church becomes near and dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul. He writes a letter later in his life from a Roman prison to the church called the Philippians. He loves this church. It's so, such a sweet church to the, Apostles Paul. And we get to, to the Apostle Paul. And we get to see how it was started. Through diverse circumstances, to diverse people, God is glorified and the people are satisfied in him. So Acts chapter 16 is where we're at this morning. The gospel is going to cross a geographic boundary. For the first time, it's going to come to Europe. And you can read earlier on in the chapter about how God led them to that miraculously. It's kind of amazing. But we're going to pick it up in verse 12. It says, and, there, and from there to Philippi we arrived, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So, so Paul and Silas and Luke come to Philippi, this leading city in the district of Macedonia. And verse 13, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to women who had come together. So this is, if you're familiar with the, the gospel of, or the, the book of Acts, this is different already because normally when Paul goes into a city, he starts with the culture and the people he knows best. He starts in the synagogue and he goes from there from the Old Testament and tells them about Jesus and then he goes outside the synagogue. But apparently Philippi, even though it was a leading city in the area of Macedonia, was so uh, pagan and so corrupt that, 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 that the Jews wouldn't live there. You needed 10 Jewish men in a city to establish a synagogue. And they're not there. So the understood backup plan was on the Sabbath, on the day of worship, if there's no synagogue, find the water in the city and God's people will gather there for prayer and for worship. And so Paul and Silas and Luke, they head down to the river and they, they stumble upon a woman's Bible study. They've just popped in the DVD of Jen Wilkin or whoever and these women are studying the scriptures together and Paul and Silas, they, they sit down and they, I imagine they listen for a while and they begin to engage. We don't, we don't know what they were studying. Maybe they were studying about Abraham and how the promise that through Abraham uh, he would bless all the nations of the earth. Maybe they were reading about the sacrificial system and how, how sin and guilt uh, needs a penalty, needs blood to be shed, and so they're, they're reading about that. Maybe they're reading some of the prophets and, and, and the promise that a day is coming when a Messiah would come and, and deliver the people of God to God. We, we don't know what they're reading, but at some point, it, 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 it became a springboard for the gospel for the Apostle Paul. And he begins to explain in a very cerebral and a very kind of uh, just, uh, um, yeah, cerebral way uh, to, to, to these women, the gospel. It says, uh, verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. And so Lydia, this, this is a woman who has, uh, for whatever reason, rejected the multiplicity of pagan gods and said there's something to the, to, to, to the one God. I think the Jews are on to something. That they, she doesn't know God yet, but she's interested and she's exploring the scriptures. She, she's, uh, in, in all ways, she's a put-together woman. Like she's a businesswoman, a seller of purple goods. That's for royalty. That's very expensive. She's got a home in Philippi and one in Thyatira. Think Milan and New York and Aspen. 
She's educated. She's a leader. She, she, she's got, in all ways, her life put together. She's moral. And in many ways, you would, in some ways, she's the least likely candidate to come to Christ. What does she need Jesus for? She's got her life together. She's got a house. She's got education. She's got money. She's got morality. She's got it all. And yet, she's desperately in need of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 says that she, along with everyone else apart from Jesus, was dead in her sins and transgressions. And so the grace of God comes to this woman. It says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. As he's, as he's just very calmly and very confidently explaining the gospel, something snaps. It makes sense to her. The, the Holy Spirit comes in. Belief comes in. She's transferred from the dominion of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Son God loves. Verse 15. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Churches, I find, are actually pretty good at reaching Lydia's. People that are interested, maybe God is drawing them in. They're willing to sit and, and have a Bible study and, and open the word. Most churches in our area do an excellent job of reaching Lydia's. The problem is Lydia's are becoming far and fewer between. You, you know what I'm saying. The statistics tell us that each year, less and less people are willing to say, hey, I wonder if the church down the street has some answers for me. It's just not even on their horizon. So, so praise God for the Lydia's. And if maybe you're a Lydia here today. We're praying that God would open your heart to see. But, but, but the fact of the matter is that they're just becoming fewer and further. Some of you were Lydia's. This is your story. You read A Reason for God by Tim Keller and just made sense to you and, and you came to faith and we praise God for that. But the gospel goes out in diverse circumstances to diverse people. Verse 16, and in diverse ways. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, so next week they're headed down. They're maybe trying to hope to uh, win some more of the women to the Lord in that way. They're going there. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So she too produced a lot of wealth, but this case, not for her, but for her slave owners. In every way except for gender, this woman is the complete opposite of Lydia. She's oppressed, she's taken advantage of, she's afflicted, and she's, she's been just, she's literally demon-possessed. To think just kind of out of her mind, hair's matted, her eyes all over the place. She is out of her mind. She's not going to the Bible study. She can't even if she wanted to. She's a slave. So how is the gospel going to intervene in an encounter? You can't hand her the book, uh, A Reason for God. She's not going to read it. There's just not the traditional ways of how you would present the gospel. And so how is the good news going to reach her? It says she followed Paul and us crying out. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. This is crazy. This happened in Jesus' ministry too. Someone demon-possessed would, would follow him around and be like, he's the son of God. The, the demons would tell the truth, but in such a way that it would became an obstacle, a barrier to the gospel, rather than a help, right? I mean, wouldn't that be a distraction? 
if every week I got up here and some dude was in the side and he was like, yeah, boy, what he said, like flavor flavor to Chuck D, you know what I'm saying? I lost half of you, but it was worth it because it would just be distracting. Like, what are you talking about? This guy's crazy on the stage, and, and he's saying what the, the guy that's speaking normally is true, but I think they're both crazy. I'm going to reject both of them. And she just keeps following him, and she keeps following him, and keeps proclaiming the truth in a demon-possessed way. Not a great evangelism strategy. And so, I love the next line. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, and that's real talk, right? I love that, because I get greatly annoyed sometimes. Paul was greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. She's set free in a demonstration of the Spirit's power in a moment, not through a Bible study, but just through the demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, Luke doesn't tell us that she becomes a believer. I, I, I think... There's some question to that, but I think we can make some inferences. Jesus said that when someone is demon-possessed and, and the demons leave, if it's not replaced by the Spirit of God, they come back in full force and more power. But the very next verses show us that that's not the case. Verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, because she's been transformed, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers and when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us Romans to accept or practice. I'm going to take a drink because I'm about to go on a rant. Um, so, you see what's happening, and this is going to happen throughout the book of Acts. That when the gospel enters into a society, it's going to challenge the very fabric of that society. And it's going to challenge the idols and it's going to challenge the, 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 the oppression and the abuse of that society. Sometimes people will ask, hey Mark, are you, is, this, is Redemption Parker a social justice church? I say no. Redemption Parker is explicitly a gospel-centered church. But to be gospel-centered means that the gospel applies to every area of our life. The gospel spins out into every area and every corner of the universe. Jesus put it this way in, in Luke chapter 4. At the beginning of his ministry, he went into the synagogue one day and he pulled out the scroll of Isaiah and he read this and he said, this is what I'm here to do. Luke chapter 4 verse 18 says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. <clears throat> he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus meant that both physically and spiritually. And so often he would free someone physically from oppression before he would free them spiritually. And so the gospel should affect every single area of our life. It should radically change. You should be a different person in the way that you see your money because the gospel's come into your life. It should be radically different in the way that you see your marriage, in the way that you raise your kids, in the way that you approach your work. In, in every area of your life, the gospel has something to say, and it should spin out into that area of your life. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. The gospel is what compels us that begins to change society. 
The gospel is what turned the world upside down in the first four centuries. When the marginalized Christians, the persecuted Christians, they would go because the gospel compelled them. They'd go to the Roman dumps and they would find the baby girls left there for dead because the Romans didn't want them. And they took them into their family and they adopted them and they said, "Uh, you're now part of our family and they raised them in the Lord. The gospel is what compelled those Christians to go into cities where the plague had struck, where the pagans were fleeing. They would go in and take care of the poor and the sick and they themselves would often die. But the love of of the Christians began to spread and more and more people were coming to faith. So that the emperors that were persecuting the Christians, we have letters where they are just, they're pulling their hair out because these Christians just keep loving people into the kingdom. Because the gospel compels us to do that. It was the gospel that compelled William Wilberforce to to give 47 years of his life to the abolition of slavery. And and three days before he was born, the, the Slave Trade Act in the British Empire in 1833 was passed. The gospel compelled him to do that. The gospel is what compelled Gary Haugen when he looked at the world and he said there's more than 27 million slaves in the world today. They're in rice mills in India. They're in brothels in Southeast Asia. They're in America. There's 27 or million slaves in the world today. The gospel has something to say about that. And if we're going to be gospel people, that should matter to us. So the gospel has something to say about image bearers from womb to tomb. So we fight for the abolition of abortion and we fight for the refugee, refugee the immigrant, and, and everywhere in between. And we might disagree about policy, but as believers in, in, in Christ, we cannot disagree that our call is to love, mercy, and compassion for all people. Because the gospel is, does that. So no, we're not a social justice church. We're a gospel church that believes the gospel impacts everything we do and so the gospel is turning over the city and and the city doesn't like it when it challenges their idols verse 22 the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods so they're stripped naked they're beaten with rods and when they had inflicted many blows upon them they threw them into prison Ordering the jailer, look at what his orders are, to keep them safe. So we introduced the third person, the jailer. He's blue collar. Oh, he could go to the worship meeting if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to. Doesn't matter how comfortable the seating is or if there's a fog machine. Like maybe he would go to that in the first century, but, but there's just nothing. There's no sermon series that's going to be like, yeah, I think I'd do that. No, he's like, I'll put in my time. I'm going to go home, crack open a beer and watch the game. That's all I want to do. This is our neighbors, many of our neighbors. He's just duty-bound, going to do his job. But, but this brother's got kind of a dark streak in him as well. Hey, keep these guys safe. Oh, I'll keep them safe. Look what he does. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. What's that? The inner prison was, was the, the part at the bottom where all the human refuge and waste would, would drip down on the, the shoulder. It's like uh, solitary confinement. And then he puts them in stocks, not just chains, stocks. This is, this is a way to twist and contort the body. It's a, it's a form of torture. He's like, oh, I'll take it to the next level. I mean, this guy was probably a former Roman soldier. This is his retirement gig. He's seen some dark things. Rome was a dark empire with their crucifixion and all the other ways that they just inflicted pain and tyranny on people. And so he's part of the system. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying 
and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This is unbelievable. You've just been stripped naked. You've been beaten. You're bleeding out. You've been put in stocks. You're, you're, you're uncomfortable. You're in pain. And maybe that's why you're singing because you can't sleep. And, and in that moment, uh, they're just praying and they're, they're singing God, songs. And they're probably singing the gospel. And Luke points out, and the prisoners were listening to them. Like, who does this? What kind of insane people still have this kind of joy? I mean, Paul must have been so frustrating to his enemies, right? Paul, I mean, we're going to kill you. Well, to die is gain. Paul, we're going we're to torture you. Well, I do not consider the present sufferings to be compared to the future glory. Okay, Paul, fine, we're going to let you live. To live is Christ. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> You, what can you do with someone so conquered by the gospel? There's just nothing you can do. And so even in this moment, he's praising God and praying. Verse 26, and suddenly there was an earthquake. He went an earthquake in the first century, put one of God's apostles in prison so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now, I've lived through a lot of earthquakes. I could conceive maybe a door cracking open, but, but chains coming off all the prisoners' arms. Like, this is obviously God is at work, and it shakes the whole place. It shakes the, the, the jailer aw awake. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. We've already seen this in the book of Acts. You lose a prisoner, you die by Roman's hands, but you first get tortured. So he's like, I'm not going out like that. And he's, he's got the sword ready to go. He's ready to take himself out. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Again, this is unbelievable. Paul's been tortured by this man. Paul's been mistreated. There's injustice that has taken place. But Paul, again, is so captured by the gospel, so understanding of his forgiveness before a holy God that he is able to forgive others because forgiven people forgive people. And Paul's like, hey, I'm not here to take advantage. We're all here. Don't kill yourself. Now, the earthquake may have shook the jailer awake, but it's the loving kindness, a, a visual, tangible expression of the gospel standing in front of this man that shook him to his core. He shook. Look what it says. It says, uh, verse 29, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he shook to the core. So Lydia just needed an explanation of the gospel. The slave girl needed the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And this jailer needed just a, a, a tangible look at another Christian who's been so rescued and redeemed that his life is transformed. And he wants that in this moment and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Verse 31. And they said, you don't do anything. You believe, trust in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And to all who were in, the, in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and his family. 
Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. The gospel goes out in diverse circumstances to diverse people for the glory of God and the joy of all people. And we see this. This is the church plant at Philippi. This is an amazing thing. These three people would not otherwise even talk to each other. They'd have no reason to. They would despise each other. In fact, the Apostle Paul, as a good Jew, a Jewish man, before his conversion to Christ, he would have prayed the prayer all the Jewish men prayed in the morning, and it would have went like this. Lord, I thank you that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And in God's beautiful mercy and grace, he starts the church at Philippi with a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. And it's a beautiful picture of the gospel going forward. And this is the invitation of those two promises to you and to me. And it's not an invitation to say, hey, if you clean up your life, if you get everything right in your life, then maybe I'll use you. No, God knows you, has created you, and it desires to use you no matter what. Do you know God knows and loves your neighbors? Do you? Do you know them? And do you love them? Do you know God desires to use your life for the advancement of the gospel you say, well, I, I've, I've got all these problems. I've messed up. I've done all these things. And it's like, yes, you can be a trophy of his grace in those moments. By grace through faith, you can come and do that. So let's be a people that do that. Let's be a sent people. Let's be a people with a missionary mindset and says, yeah, the vast majority won't come in here, but we can go to them. The vast majority won't go to any church on Sunday, but they'll probably come into our backyard for a barbecue or a, our front street for a block party. And we can begin to build bridges and define different winds and ask God to work in and through us because God delights to bring the gospel to diverse circumstances, to diverse people for his glory and our joy. To that end, let me pray for us. So Father, we come before you now once again. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for the rescue of Lydia's. Lord, and I pray if there's anyone here this, this morning that does not yet know you as Lord and Savior, would you do in them what you did in Lydia? Would you open their heart to see and hear a voice other than my voice this morning? And by grace through faith, come and experience new life in you. For the rest of us, Lord, would you just remind us that we have everything we need. We have a mission and the power to accomplish it. So would you give us confidence as we step boldly out of this room into the world that you've called us to, to the end that Jesus is seen and savored and glorified, we ask. In his name, amen.